and welcome to 9 to 42, the podcast from the team at the Guitar Show UK. Join us for interviews, updates and chat with artists, influencers and those that manufacture the gear that we love. Welcome to 942. This is episode uh, episode three uh, of 942, the Guitar Show podcast. Uh, and I'm looking at uh, my good friend Jason, who's on screen again. Hello, Jason. Hello, man. How are you? I'm all right, thank you. You? Yeah, I'm not too bad actually. I'm really not too bad. I've just I've just done myself a, a what is a ridiculously strong cup of coffee because I got <laughs> all my measurements totally wrong. That's about knocking my head off. Um, but that'll keep me that'll keep me going through this this recording. Not that I need excessive caffeine to talk to you, obviously. We should have um, called this guitars and coffee. Guitars and coffee. It's a bit late now. <laughs> I like I like I like nine to forty two. I think nine to forty two is great. Um, so we're 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 back with episode three uh, of the new podcast, um, which I'm really quite excited about. I'm, I think it's going really well. I'm still the reluctant podcaster. You are still the reluctant <laughs> podcaster. Yeah, I know. I know. It's it's for for people who can't see this, um, which is everybody, um, <laughs> apart from my son who just wandered in, wandered out again. Um, Jason and I normally natter a bit before we start recording, and and we we both sort of hit the record button. And at the point when we hit the record button, he his back goes straight, and he sits really really uncomfortably in his chair, and yet. <laughs> Ten seconds before he was perfectly perfectly normal, but this this phobia you've got about when a microphone's live, where, where did that come from? I have no idea. I never ever wanted to uh, be the front person for the show. I just wanted the show to stand on its own and be judged as a show. And the the guy that runs it is completely irrelevant. Um, but that's not the way the world works anymore. No, no. no. You are you are brand Jason, uh, uh, apparently so. Yes, 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 yes. <laughs> We've um, since we spoke to you last, um, this, uh, recording setups have changed slightly in the terms of the fact that now Jason and I are both have both now got mini vocal screens in front of us, housing our microphones to stop reflections and to hopefully improve. You know, even just slightly, the the quality of the audio. Have we? Have we? Is this for vanity? Is this so we feel like we're real podcasters, or do we think it's going to make a difference? Because you look like a real podcaster this morning. Well, thank you very much. It's, um, yeah, it's amazing what twenty six pound fifty off eBay can do. <laughs> oh, gotta love eBay. So we've we've both got these little vocal screens. We're now we're now peeping over the top. And what was that cartoon thing with the guy that? With the head and the two hands that went above a wall. Chad. Was that what that was? Yeah. Right, what okay. no. What no. Yeah. You've got to be of a certain age to remember that. We're both a little bit like that this morning. In fact, <laughs> you're not dissimilar, but you've got a little bit more hair. Well, yeah. I'm very fortunate to be 50 and with a full head of hair. Oh, that is, that is, that's, that's an impressive, that is an impressive head of hair. Anyway, we'll... We are digressing far too much. Um, so today we have another interview that we recorded back at the guitar show back um, at the beginning of March. Uh, and today, drum roll, we have... Mike Exeter. And you were saying in one of the previous podcasts, you met Mike at the show last year? The year before 2019, last? yeah, for the first right. time. Um, I... I and he's a really lovely guy, and uh, we got on really well at the show, and then we ended up working together. He came to work for uh, BIM, uh, BIM Birmingham, which is the other company when I'm not running the show I work for. And uh, so I've been working with him for 12, 13 months now. Right. Um, and I, I can't believe that you've got music production students that are getting lessons from a bloke that remixed, uh, well, uh, recorded and mixed the, the last Black Sabbath show that came out and has worked with yeah. Tony on several albums before that. Um, but also, as you'll discover, was it Justin Timberlake and Britney Spears and Christina yes. Aguilera? Aguilera, too. yes, yes. Though he was he was a little bit coy on that subject. Okay. Uh, <laughs> I don't blame him. <laughs> I, 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 I don't know. Um, you know, we perhaps don't need to push that too much, but he was a little coy. But yes, yes, Britney, Britney, Black Sabbath, UB40. Yeah. 
It is the holy trinity, isn't it? (laughs) It really is the holy trinity. He works with priests as well, doesn't he? Yeah, he does work with priests as well. So it's it's very Birmingham. Yes. Apart from Brittany. Apart from Brittany. Uh, Who's just shaking the accent? (laughs) I mean, that's all that she's doing. She's shaking the accent. I mean, we all Uh, know that Brittany actually did hail, you know, she did hail from, from, from just outside Tamworth. (laughs) <laughs> uh, but she's let the accent go. Um, so, uh, so I, yeah. I went that's... to see her once in concert. Uh, one of the joys of working at the NEC is, uh, I probably shouldn't say this, but I don't work there anymore, so I don't care, um, is that when gigs um, haven't sold out, right? Um, the NEC staff are offered tickets um, for anywhere between £1 and £10, right. uh, basically to fill the arena. Yeah. And uh, my eldest daughter who's never 17 was i don't know five or six at the time and um we went to see uh britney um and it was one of the truly most bizarre gigs i've ever been Mm. to in my life it was incredibly quiet in the fact that you could have a conversation with people you know other dads that had gone with that were three three seats down sort of thing but um also she was only live for the first song yeah. And the rest of it, her mic was only turned on so she could scream "Hello, Birmingham." Yeah, and then it was back to backing tracks. It was yeah, odd, odd gig. Well, it was an odd period of music, in in, the, in because it was all playback at that point, and it was all about the dance routine. And I know it probably still is, but I think it's gone back to being a little bit more live now. The the manufactured pop scene is not as bad as it was then, but then it was awful. Yeah, I, I mean, you know, in my. Um... In that period, I went to see uh, JLS, um, yeah. Girls Aloud, yeah. um, uh, which was <laughs> the funniest thing about Girls Aloud is that uh, uh, if you've ever been to the NEC, if a gig hasn't sold particularly well, they have the famous blue curtain that covers right. off the back that covers end of off the, the arena. Back end, yeah. Yeah. And, um, so it Girls still Aloud- looks full with yeah. 500 people in it. So Girls Aloud had come, uh, they'd, they'd been lifted from the stage to a small stage in the centre of, of the arena, just in front of the mixing desk. Yeah. And um, and they were obviously set to do a dance routine for all those people at the back. That, <laughs> um, But nobody thought to turn it through 90 degrees. So they ended up doing a dance routine to a blue curtain. <laughs> I just can't oh. believe that nobody... Oh. Nobody in Girls oh. Aloud thought about it, let alone any of the crew or management or anything. It was just it's, really bizarre. It's like, it's like that must it was their spinal tap moment, wasn't it, when they dropped Stonehenge on the stage? It's, yeah. it's that it's that moment for Girls Aloud, and it still yeah. goes on. So, uh, which is, reminds me, one one week we must talk about Spinal Tap, just, just because we must. Because it's the greatest film ever made. Yes, we must. We must. Um, we, yes, we, right. Note to self: Spinal Tap special one week. Right, um, we've we've banged on it a, a bit too much here. So back to Mike. So um, Mike, um, this, this interview was recorded in our now infamous uh, cloakroom sessions. Um, the cloakroom sessions, I like that. Um, and uh, and and it's a, it covers a huge range of stuff. So uh, we hope you enjoy that. Have a listen, and uh, and we'll speak to you again uh, after hearing from Mike. Right then, uh, we're day two of the guitar show, um, and I'm backstage uh, recording uh, with uh, Mike Exeter. Um, and I have to say, I knew nothing about Mike before I met him uh, yesterday uh, and have done nothing but chat incessantly to him since we, since we actually met. So Mike's a producer and mix engineer uh, and he's worked with uh, the likes of Black Sabbath and Judas Priest and UB40, uh, but also Christina Aguilera and Brittany Smears and uh, any number of people. Um, but I'll let Mike give you more of a, a background on, on that. And what we're going to talk a little bit about today is the, is the changing way in which bands have interacted from, from 
you know, the history of, of how bands used to work um, in recording studios and rehearsal studios to how bands actually, you know, work and, and interact now because it's definitely been a change in, in landscape. But before we get there, let's talk a little bit more about Mike's past. So, Mike, can you give us a potted kind of history of Mike Exeter? Yeah, let me uh, preface it with the Brittany and Christina were 14 and they were part of the Mickey Mouse Club. I don't so think saying they were 14 helps. But no, no, it does because there was a whole bunch of Mouseketeers, as they were called. They were Mouseketeers. They resurrected the, the whole Mouse Club thing back in 91. And I was in, um, I was doing a degree in Florida at a place right. called Full Sail. And when I graduated, I went on to become an intern at the pro studio part yep. of the, the college. And we were doing the Mouse Club stuff with a really talented guy called Mikey Jeezy, who was Richard Marx's keyboard oh, player right, at okay. the time. Um, so we were sending his stuff down on 24-track tape a slave reel down to um, Disney Studios where the Mouseketeers would wail over these tracks. <laughs> it's the first time I ever heard the um, the comment, I think she just hit a demolished ninth. <laughs> <laughs> so we'd, uh, we'd do that. So that was the Brittany and Christine thing. So that's kind of how my story started. No, no it's, it's there. It's, and it's, Justin it's, was there as well. Yeah. Uh, but It's on the CV. Yeah, exactly. But I, I, that was kind of the almost the beginning of my pro recording career. I'd yeah. done a little bit of stuff in England but I really wanted to I wanted to get out and do that horrible thing networking I wanted yeah. to find a way of immersing myself in the whole idea of becoming an engineer yeah. and because being a keyboard player um, in the 70s there weren't many gigs no. it was all punk or you had to own a Rhodes or a Hammond and they're really horrible to carry upstairs so you were playing keyboard late 70s then if that was the point yeah I was, bo- I was born in 67 so right. my teenage years were the 70s and early 80s and um, I, I mean, I was, I loved playing keyboards, yeah. but I just, there wasn't an outlet for it. Even when the 80s came and it was all since, I yeah. kind of, I was already tending towards um, slightly heavier stuff, not yeah. metal by any means, no. but I was into prog. I, I right. really loved um, Pink Floyd with my band right, okay. as they evolved through the years and ELO, um, even though not proggy, but certainly elements of yeah. pompousness yeah. and Queen were the, the big one. So, yeah, well, that's where prog's such a weird term, yes. isn't it? Because you have, you, somebody says prog and you have a thought of yeah. this thing. Yeah, it certainly know. wasn't yes. Uh, no, no and, that's, and that's the point, isn't it? That yeah, everybody exactly. suddenly visualises Rick Wakeman in, even, in a big ad. But it, there, it? you see, that was the first album I ever got bought. My dad bought yeah. me Journey to the Centre of the Earth and yeah. there's Rick in his gold cape yeah. on the front cover with all these keyboards yeah. around him. So that's like it's an inspirational an thing. I asked for a gold cape. I'm here with Focus <laughs> right, and they said, do you have any needs? And I said, a gold cape and some caviar. Right. Neither have appeared. No, no, so I'm absolutely no, gutted. No, no. Um, but so that got me uh, early 20s. I'd done, um, I'd done a few years working for my dad's engineering firm, Machine Tools, learning about um, electronics and computer-based machine tools and robots yeah. and stuff like that. Uh, but it was time to move into en- into actual engineering in right. a audio sense. Right. Um, and it was a choice between Sandwell College in the Midlands or Orlando, Florida. Right. And Florida kind of got it. It, yeah. was, it was a bit of Unbelievable, an odd decision. Unbelievable, that really, yeah. So I did a degree there. Uh, I met some of my best friends um, who are best friends to this day. Um, and straight out of college went on to do the internship. Then spent the rest of my two-year visa up in Rochester, New York, okay. at a studio. Um, I initially came in as a MIDI specialist and uh, set up a MIDI room there, but also did the graveyard shifts. Right. Because... That must have been fairly early for MIDI. Um, it was... This no, was no, no, it's... Yeah, we're actually almost... Yeah, okay. Yeah, so it was, um, and it was, it was a really cool thing because doing... There were young bands who couldn't afford the chief engineer or daytime studio rates. Right. So right. I'd do the midnight shift yeah, yeah. through to 8am or 10 till yeah. 8. And um, so I was getting the opportunity to get in an engineer sessions yeah. where people who were assistants during the day were assisting. They yeah. never got their hands yeah. on. I got my first production credit on a country record by a band who they just needed someone who would take them on and they yeah. liked me because I had a British yeah. accent. And we had fun. And yeah. this is less than a year out of school. Yeah. And I also got to work with some amazing musicians because Rochester 
New York has the Eastman School of Music. Yeah. So Steve Gadd was from there, Tony Levin was from there, yeah. they came in on sessions, and I saw the elevation of our local session musicians in Rochester were fantastic right up until Steve Gadd came in and Tony Levin came in, and suddenly it was like, oh my God, yeah. whatever the kit is is unimportant, yeah. which is a sort of this instant shift in like, you've got to learn all the gear that you, you have, but yeah. it's all about how you use it, the emotion you put out using yeah. it etc so that was the start my visa was due to run out um, there was no way as so early on in my career that I could get a work visa right. so I moved back to England okay. and immediately got um, got into looking at studios I was already living in the uh, the Birmingham area um, so before I went down to London and tried my luck there Wrote to a few studios and got a, um, got offered a gig at UB40's place. Right. And their two engineers were going off to do different things. One had a, a single, his name is Bitty McLean, and he had a single called uh, If It's Raining. Right. And the other guy was Jerry Parchment, who went out to do their two-year Promises and Lies tour. So right. they've got a studio and nobody to run it. Right. So I went in and got uh, initially freelance, then got given the gig and ended up as their head engineer. Right. And that's... That and that's was, established it really at a very yeah. early age. Because how old were you at that point? I was well. I was twenty-four <laughs> when I went to America, so um, fairly early on. Yeah, yeah. 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 And then um, it just it sort of just tumbled from there into any opportunity I got given. Right. I, I went for. But that's then a shift from UB forty to Black Sabbath, isn't it? It is. The funny thing is that um, the only opportunity, and I, I'm a real advocate for. Give it a go. Yeah. I'm not the. Mo- I wasn't the most confident person in the world. Um, I would struggle walking into a room full of people. Yeah. Um, I had all sorts of um, anxiety issues and yeah. stuff, uh, and I was always putting on a front. So back in the day, um, I, I had a. Um, I had an opportunity to do a um, a Cradle of Filth record. Oh, okay. Because I was the head engineer at the studio, and yeah. they kind of just wanted someone of capability and they said you know would you produce it and as I say I'm a real advocate for just giving it a go at this point I went not a chance I listened to this album and it didn't help the fact that I was actually I'd taken a load of cabling back home to do some wiring just on a day off and I started listening to their album and I saw black clouds appearing in the (laughs) it was the it was literally like I I frightened myself into thinking I couldn't work with this band what could I offer them and funnily enough it was the best thing that ever happened because the producer that came in to work with them knew Tony Tony was working on an album in Coventry he got Tony to come to Depp the studio and um Said producer goes off to do another album. Tony likes me. I meet Tony. Yeah. So if I hadn't, if I'd taken the Cradle of Filth album, my yeah. life would have been very different. Yeah. But it's the only time I've actually accepted that I may may have, uh, you know, I didn't jump in and do the right thing. You know, I should have gone for that, but I'm glad I didn't. But then I, I suppose from what you've just said, you've not then done that since. No. So every other opportunity that's come up, you've, Everything. you've, you've, you've taken that. Yeah, and it's caused me stress. I mean, I had yeah. a major breakdown five years ago. I, I talk about um, mental health. I do lots for it because yeah. it's something that I recognise as be- becoming more of a problem. Yeah. I didn't know the term existed until three years ago. No. And I've tried to align myself with lots and lots of people about it. Mm. I'm t- I talk to students. I'm doing a couple of talks on Tuesday. It's really mm. important to get people to realise that you don't have to do every opportunity that comes no. to you. No. But one of the causes of me having the breakdown was ha- thinking I still had to do this project, finish this one, overlap with this one, and right in the middle of the overlap, do another one and do 22-hour days. But, it's it's funny, and I'll, and I'll give a little bit of insight um, into my background here, but um, I had a similar experience mm. when I was in my uh, my about twenty nine thirty, mm. um, and uh, and I ended up having some counselling, and uh, which which I would thoroughly recommend, absolutely mm. fantastic um, thing to do, and, and made a difference to my life. But I'll, I'll never forget um, in the very first session, um, the guy I was talking to said to me, "Look, um, think of think of your mental health." like a river mm. and the water running down the middle that's that's the stresses and the things that you're taking on in your mm. life that cause you issues and cause you you know concerns and that water level will rise and it will drop so at certain points in your life you're, you you know you haven't got 
uh, as much going on. Other points, you ha you, you're collecting more things that are causing you anxiety and stress. <clears throat> but what happens is, invariably, that water level just naturally rises and falls, and, and, and that's how your mm. life is the vast majority of the time. Um, the problem is, if, you, if the water level keeps rising, you keep piling things in yeah. there, when it bursts the banks that's when all hell breaks mm. loose because in reality there is no then there's no plan for that because no. the water just goes everywhere yeah. and that's how your life is when you have that moment so <clears throat> it isn't something that's unique to any individual person no. it's not a particular personality tra tra type that will you know you can't spot somebody who's who potentially is going mm. through or will have or has had mental health issues um, but the point is when that thing happens and when your banks burst you just don't know how to deal no. with it. It's like a shutdown. Yeah. Um, and you know, and, and I really related to that mm. when he when he told me. And it's funny because I've had that story with lots of people since. Because when you've been through it, you actually see yourself spotting it. Yeah, in you other do. People, you do totally. And and I think it's very important to um, to to give people the um, the information yes. and give them the signs. I did a talk at NAMA um, beginning of last year. And I think I'm the first person that's brought the subject up in yeah. in that environment. And it was a really positive talk. And so many people contacted me afterwards and spoke to me after the show saying they just recognised the odd thing in my story that they were like, oh, that's happening to me. Yeah. I need to take care of yes. that. And mine's not counselling. I'm, I I'm not qualified to do that. But what I can say is... There are certain things you could do. If this is happening to you, just maybe step back. Maybe mm. look at it. This happened to me. Mm. It nearly killed me. Mm. I was hospitalized mm. and two days from death. It's mm. a big, major thing. Mm. But I got through it. Mm. And it's informed me so much more the way I am now. But it's so important to get the youngsters while they're... Yes in stressful situations like doing degrees oh, yeah. yeah yeah well the thing the thing for me is when it when it stopped me and it does stop you there's yeah. no doubt it stops your life for a, a period of time when it stopped me um i then realized that actually the journey for me had started in my early teens yeah and i'd not until i until i actually stopped my life did i then join all of those dots yeah, totally. so so you know if somebody had spoken to me about this when i was 15 16 17 there's a very good chance what happened to me might not have happened to the same extent absolutely it might not have stopped my life yeah because you know m these things don't go away no. but you learn how to spot them yeah. you learn how to to, to to you know to, to cut them off cut, cut them off at the pass a little earlier and you learn how to cope with yeah. what comes out of it because often what comes out when your banks do burst is that the behavioural behavioural traits at that point in time? Those are the bits that you can't do anything about. Yeah. That's the bit when you shut down and you can't deal with people yeah. and you can't deal with situations. Uh, and and if you can find ways of, you know, of spotting that mm. and taking yourself out of those situations early, then it then then it is possible to, you know, it, it is possible to cope with it far better. Well, but you need a strategy um, for it. Yeah, there, there's a lot. It was something we were talking about earlier, um, which it leads nicely into is that. Um, one of the worst things is isolation. Yeah. I, we're, we're designed as a race, or we've evolved as a race to communicate. Yeah. We've developed language. Yeah. It's massively important in the job I do to establish um, the language that we need to talk to describe guitar tones yeah. or the what the singer's written his lyrics about. Yeah. But our language is communication. We only do that when we're we're actually face to face yeah. with someone. Email is crap. All of the, the ways that the business has evolved into sending mixed notes by text and not even having phone calls about something is so ridiculous yeah. that I, I hardly work that way anymore. Yeah. And it's, it's sort of, it's become the way the industry works is studios have shut down, multi-room complexes don't exist. So where do we get together anymore? Yeah. And I'm really pleased. There's a whole bunch of us. It was a couple of guys I know, Emray and um, Julian, who put together this thing called Audio Rehab. And it was basically, we're all going to get together once a month or once every couple of months at a nominated studio in London and have a moan about the industry. Yeah. And of course, we don't moan. No. We have a great laugh. We see our mates. Yeah. And the, the smiles and goodwill that go around that room on that evening is incredible. You know, I live in Warwick. I drive down to London I tube it in it takes me two hours it takes me I get, I get home at half two in the morning but what a great way to spend an evening yeah. and I think 
this this isolation has propagated itself so much into everything. Mm. We're you know we're talking about how you can sit in your bedroom with a little interface and create music and that's wonderful but how about doing it in a rehearsal room with the rest of the guys and mm. and actually become part of a community mm. and i think this is a massive part isolation um has just it's been it's triggered by technology a lot yes. because it, it's an enabler we're we're able to see everything through the screen on our phone but when that becomes involved in the creative process, yeah. it, it's it's almost like the the oxymoron, although yeah. that's wrong. You cannot collaborate with someone over the phone. No, no. It's funny because I, um, you know, I I've been working with podcasts for a little while now, and I almost have a rule that if I'm speaking to somebody on a podcast, it has to be face to face. Yeah. Because you can't make it work no. really any other way. No. You can make the quality work. But you can't make the conversation no. work, um, you know. And 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 we're sat, you know, either side of a flight case. Yeah, it's really rock and roll. Uh, We've got to get know, a photo. Of we, this. we have. Well, I'll make sure we do. But uh, <laughs> and, and as I mentioned on on the, some of the ones I recorded yesterday, it's, it is a cloakroom. We sat we sat in a cloakroom, yeah. and it's not even a very nice cloakroom. No. Um, but there's there's the you know what what really makes a difference to the conversations is the credibility of the fact yeah. that we are both sat Absolutely. here. And it almost doesn't matter where we are no. because because it, it helps the it helps the conversation. So flipping back to you then. Yeah. So because this is going to tie in a little bit. So you're a, you know you're working with starting to work with Tony and therefore by default Black Sabbath. <laughs> That's all right. Go uh, carry yeah, on. Yeah, fine. We've just had uh, gentleman's just popped in to get his bag. We'll see you know give him a bit of a name we're, shout out if he wants. We're going to see what. <laughs> He's okay. He's just checking to see if we nicked. Anything. He nicked anything from his bag. Yeah. Um, <laughs> We'll hang on a second and then we'll yeah, crack on right. and we'll find a way of making this work in the edit. And that's what, no, that's you're fine, right. you're fine. Um, so yeah, so um, let's get, we'll get back on track with um, with your story. So you're you're back in Birmingham, you've done the U, you've done the US thing, bit of, uh, you know, bit of California, bit of uh, New York. Yeah. Um, obviously met one of my heroes in Tony Levin, which is uh, very cool. Um, <clears throat> you've got an introduction to Tony Iommi. Yeah. Um, What's the world at that point in time? Because we just had that little conversation about interaction and all those things. But I guess, you know, in the mid-90s, which is when I guess we're talking about, the world is very different because all those hubs, all those places that musicians congregate and bump into each other, that's still very much alive. Yeah, this is is 1996. Um, We're working on analogue tape, large consoles. Um, Depth Studios was a two-room facility, yep. so one was ostensibly a 48-track mix room yep. with a, an ISO room. It was bigger than a booth, um, and that's where he initially came in um, to mix some tracks. Um, when we tracked his demos, which was the next stage for what became an album called the uh, 96 Depth Sessions, that was... Um, that was done in the downstairs basement studio, which was a really nice little room, 24-track, couple of big rooms next to it. Um, and it was very collaborative. It was uh, it was like a, a wish list of people. Yeah. I had Don Airy came in on keyboards. I mean, he was on every album I ever wanted to listen yeah. to. You know, I used to sit there with my sequencer trying to do Eyes of the World from um, the Rainbows Down to Earth album. And I, suddenly I'm able to chat to him. Yeah. Glenn Hughes from Trapeze Deep Purple, he came in to play bass and sing. There was a drummer who unfortunately got... Um, there was a... He was Judas Priest drummer for a while, a guy called Dave Holland, and there's some pretty nasty, seedy stuff went on with him. So later in the story, we had to replace his drums. Um, But initially, it was this great thing of, like, here's here's just Tony walking into another studio because he's 30 years into his career at this point, and it's natural for him. So it didn't matter that it was Studio B. Yeah. Just came into work. And in the other room, we had... um, band called Kalik, local band playing, and they were like, you know, starstruck that Tony's there. But you're in the inner sanctum. The studio's an inner sanctum place. If you get through the front door of a studio, you're going to bump into people, and it's lovely. And there's a real sense of community. And uh, and we had great fun. I mean, it was was good stuff. That, I, I think we had about... Uh, probably six, six or seven years where the studio was really vibing. It yeah. was nice, yeah. um, and we were the go-to place in Birmingham because yeah. we we kept upgrading. We made it properly commercial, um, yeah. and then it was uh, just time for change. And uh, we had our first kid, and 
Um, so there was a, that's when I went freelance. Yeah. Which was, it was initially daunting, but. And it you was must have okay. been doing that what? 15, 20 years then now? No, no, I was, amazingly, that was, um, that was six, six or seven years oh, right, after. Oh, okay, right, fine, yeah. right, fine, so I've got my timeline. 92 I graduated and I was, I was freelance 98. Right, wow, yeah. wow. Forced on me, but it was fine. Yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> wow, okay, that's cool. Yeah. So, um, how do you think, so obviously you've got, you've got a way of working and, and got used to a way of working yeah. that, that now really is case kind of to a certain extent disappeared. Yeah, what was interesting was the, um, the period I decided to, uh, I was, UB40's place became, they took it over again yeah. and they, they were, uh, if you've seen the, the movie Promises and Lies, the documentary, yeah. they went through some real horrible times. Yeah. That was the time I was there. Right. It wasn't my fault, but there was, <laughs> that was the time. And so they were kind of scrambling to get their control back of their careers. And there was all sorts of weird stuff going on behind the scenes. So commercial studios out the window. Yeah. So I'm let go. Yeah. It, it coincides with us having our first kid. I'd I'd been working on the early versions of Pro Tools back in ninety three yeah. when it first came out, end of ninety two. So I had hard drives of stuff. Yeah. I had my own little system at home. Um, when I had a few hours to myself, I would just sit there and start working what is now called in the box. Yeah. And I started to realise there was this this one session I did in Liverpool freelance where I, I, I was able to hire in a, a much higher powered system and I realised this is the future you yeah. know there is a way of making this work it, we couldn't wait to do all the edits and then get them back on two inch where yeah. it was safe but there was something about this um, yeah. so well, well, and I think you know I mean if, if memory serves I mean you know that period in the early in the early 2000s where suddenly we got the ability yeah. to capture multiple audio yeah you know because that's essentially what we waited for we waited yeah. we waited for the processing power to catch yeah. to capture 24 tracks we, we had to recording. use the cheaper way of working was always using things like Alesis HD24s yes. or Mackie HDRs yes. yeah or ADAT yeah um, and ADAT was really creative but yeah. you had to always keep one eye on the error count yeah. on the tapes because it was a consumer format made yeah. pro yeah um, but I never worried about, particularly about the format it was more about always seeing the positive side of we could do this that this there's the technology is now enabling us mm. to not have any excuse but even the consumer formats you talked about there they still required that you know, it was still a desk based you know it was yeah. just an alternative way of yeah. capturing the you know cap, of capturing the data i mean as soon as as soon as we start to get to you know the likes of nuendo coming out mm. and the likes of 24 track audio mm. on uh, you know, basing it in a computer that mm. what you've just talked about, the yeah. in the box edit, that then that then became a yeah. You know, it became a well, thing. The, fir the first Pro Tools was a four track recorder. Yeah. Um, it was actually two pieces of software, Pro Deck and Pro Edit. Um, very quickly evolved, but then it took this this paradigm shift into it became part of a studio. Yeah. And then Mackie came along and did this thing called a Huey, which yeah. enabled you to control the mixer. <coughs> yes. And I and I'm totally in the box but I always have control services yes. now I'll be on an SSL console with a, a Huey layer on it yeah. because I still want to move faders yeah. around and so what's what what I bring to it apart from the I, you know I'd gone around the reeking on thinking everything was amazing and look you can draw automation on screen yeah. but eventually coming back to there is nothing better than faders under your fingers yeah. because you can shut your eyes and move stuff inst yeah. instinctively because to to listen you really need to put yourself yeah. into be yeah. between the speakers not yeah. not literally but you've got to listen through the depth and and hear what's going on um and oddly um a later part of the story but one that's very important to me when i was recovering from my hospitalization I started listening to a gift from Brad from Rage Against the Machine because he played drums on the Sabbath album we finished in 2013. He gave me their 20th anniversary box set of their first album and I put it on the turntable to listen to it and it all came flooding back about what it was that had got me involved in yeah. working with bands. And I started listening to old DAT tapes of stuff I'd done at UB's place mm. and it was so simple mm. and it was getting a band in a room together mm. 
getting ready for the studio, mm. going into the studio and playing together, mm. not using clicks if you don't need to, mm. ignoring all of the things that generally become crutches for mm. producers and engineers. They like to work on grids because it makes editing simpler. Yeah. It may not be the right thing for the band. No. But consequently, I might, it might not be the right thing for a band to work without a click. Yeah. But bands know that I would rather try it without, but I want them to play together because the whole process changes when a band's together. Mm. The bass player may not say boo to a goose, but he might play a little lick that the guitarist hears, yes. and then the drummer goes, I want to follow that. Yeah. And then they go, well, actually, if we did that there, couldn't we try that? That wouldn't happen if the guitarist in his bedroom with the Pro Tools rig and his interface and the drum machine or the drum programming yeah. software dictates everything yes. to the band they're literally session musicians yeah. at this point so I think it's really important to get back what it's about to be a musician in a band and create and is that something you find yourself talking to you know bands today yeah. about because actually yeah. if you've not grown up I mean I grew up through a period where yeah that's how bands were yes. you know they, they would you know you know back back in Back in the sort of uh, in, in the in the sort of eighties and nineties, bands would would just decamp to a mm. studio and they would write yeah. an album there. Absolutely, you know, and studio time was something that record companies were proud to pay yeah. for, and, bank, and bands would decamp for weeks mm. and months on end. And, and of course, you've got plenty of studios with living facilities, yeah. and that's what happened. Um, and and you know, so that's what I've always mm. been used to. I've always yeah. been used to that first take of being done live, and then you end up on the, on, the, on the top of that. Well, this is it. This is where um, you actually get bands saying to you really I, we can play together or I don't have to use a click and, yeah. and I am slightly sarcastic so my answer is generally well, well do you use a click live yeah. and I'm not trying to be sarky no, but it no, comes no, across no, like no. that and they're like well no but you know I might speed up and slow down I'm like well if that becomes a problem we'll address it in a different way yeah. we'll go for different takes yeah. my editing's fine yeah. it's even better now I don't have to do it on tape so I don't yeah. cut myself yeah. but Having had that background of making tape edits work, and tape, we didn't have grids. We did it by you know scrubbing reels against the tape head, making marks with China Graph pencils, mm. chopping bits of tape mm. out and putting them back in different places. Mm. So when you've got that mindset, you, you get away from this whole looking at everything visually thing. Yes. And I think that's critical. My pet, when people say, what's the greatest thing that's happened to the industry and what's the worst thing, it's... Pro Tools, it's yeah. digital audio workstations. Yeah, it's, it's the same thing, isn't it's it? It's the great thing, mm. but I wish there were no screens in the room mm. because everybody's intent on looking at a screen. Mm. And it's not like I don't look at the screen. Obviously, my editing's done on screen, mm. but my screens are kept to one side mm. so that when I'm listening, engaging with the musicians, I'm not looking at a screen. We're no. listening. I'm making notes on a piece mm. of paper or an iPad now. Mm. But it's always about... You learn the structure of the songs mm. with the band. You're mm. not going, oh, yeah, I know where the chorus is. It's like, I know where the chorus is because it comes after this little lick the guitarists yeah, yeah. play. It's about involving yourself in the process. And I think it's getting lost. It's got lost over the last couple of decades. It's coming back. But you're really having to fight tooth and nail to, to give the band the ability to just get in there and do it. Mm. They're wor they worry about shit that they've read on sound in Sound on Sound or seen mm. on internet forums. Mm. They're like, but spill's a problem, this is a problem, that's mm. a problem. And it's like, God, you're never going to go anywhere no, if everything's not. a problem. No, no, just not. trust me. No. Let's, let's not worry about all those things. Well, plus as well, I mean, there's so many. You, you, you go back through history and so there's so many cherished moments yep. that are out there that were... Never meant to be out there. That that you know, that there was a, you know, and you, and you listen to the stories of how these things were put together, and you realise that that recording should never have made it, and that isn't, you know, I, I the number of times I've heard of 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 you know of, of snippets that were that were captured in a rehearsal studio, and that mm. turns out to be the vocal that, that made its way to the final edit. And well, I, yeah, I've got one on that. I'll get to that. The um, the interestingly, Warren Hewitt does a podcast produced like a pro, and he recently interviewed Graham Coxon, and they were right. talking about song number two yeah and Graham's like nobody wanted to do this he goes I didn't want to play it he goes the other guys there, you know yeah. it was just this idea you can hear we didn't give him yeah. you know and he's like the sounds were wrong yeah. that became one of their biggest hits yeah. and it was captured and it was, it's gritty and it's yes. brilliant and the same thing happened to me I, we were songwriting 
with um, Ronnie James Dio for the uh, album. They became it became called Heaven and Hell as a band because they Black Sabbath couldn't exist in two yeah. places. Ozzy was is still the singer in Black yeah. Sabbath, but when they got back together with Ronnie for a bit um, about twelve years ago, we were writing at his place and. Um, he put down a vocal just to try it. He goes, I've got the idea for this song. It's called Bible Black. And he read me the lyrics and he says, can we just just give it a try? And we were just writing, um, I had Tony and Geezer in the room, Ronnie be upstairs working on lyrics. And I'd just program some drums and we'd get the songs into shape. And Ronnie did this vocal and it made it through to the final part of the record because he never ever sang it as well again yeah. because the first time he sang it he was like reading his lyrics and he was really feeling them out yeah. and it was incredible he just yeah. said I don't know if I can beat that no. and he tried and he said can you just can you use can you make it, it and work? I went yeah, yeah. <laughs> of course we can yeah. and that's the point yeah. um, and that's one thing technology has given us that would have probably been erased because we needed tracks yeah. but yeah. now yeah. we no, don't no it's not a problem now no. you can now you can do it no. so what does the future hold for you then? I'm do- well. I've just finished actually remixing a Sabbath album from '95 with Tony. Um, that it was the final album before um, they they finally called it a day and then got back together with um, um, with Ozzy back in '99. Yeah. Um, and that's led on to now. Now Tony's got that out the way and he's happy and he's just launched his replica guitar from the you know the 50th anniversary we're now um just starting to explore new stuff with him yeah so there's a little bit of writing going on for a project that doesn't know what it wants to be yet but he's he's spoken about it um recently it could be a solo album it might end up being some instrumental stuff it may be some film soundtrack stuff so that's one avenue that um i'm going down with him um, I'm working with a band from Cornwall who's signed to Marshall Records, the amplifier people oh, right, have okay. a label, yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, which is quite funny because the um, head of label or the managing director, A&R'd the Black Sabbath album that I've just finished remixing, right. he, was, he was with IRS Records right. back in the <laughs> right. 90s, right. so that's quite funny and he got in touch with me and said would you work with this band King Creature? Um, and they're brilliant, they're from Cornwall, they're, they're like a biker rock band. Yeah verging on a heavy metal but yeah. I got on this conversation with um, with the lead singer one night and we started talking about Transatlantic who Pete from Marillion yes, is a player yeah, you know, yeah. Mike Portnoy and there's this massive prog element so yeah. we're in we've done two singles I'm, I'm actually um, using one of them for my talk with Focus right at the moment at the show um, and they've gone very well we've just got to get some more songwriting sessions in and what's what's lovely about it because it kind of feeds into the whole um, the way the, the industry's working now is we're doing it in their lockup. They've got yeah. a very nice, big, almost like a quadruple garage, which is yeah. their HQ. They yeah. rehearse there. But we did one track in a studio, and then cost-wise, it's just not sustainable. No. no. Not if they want to work with no. me. No. And that's not because I'm really expensive. It's just like the budget for the record is this. Yes. Make it work. Yes. I'm happy. I go down to Cornwall. Their manager puts me up in a really nice little place in his property. Mm. Um it's where they all live it's their rehearsal room yeah. we make it work yeah. and, and you I can took, take the time to make it exactly. work exactly yeah. and you know I went. I took both songs to mastering and it's the same sound it yeah. doesn't matter no um, and that's the thing it's, it's trying to well, I suppose the worst comes the worst you could always take the first one and actually redo it again couldn't well, you well exactly yeah. Yeah. yeah but it's, it's wonderful so, um, so that's that's a focus I'm doing a lot of mixing um, right. which I do tend to do quite a lot at home yeah but I also do uh, mentoring um, to university which you touched students, on around, yeah. um, which is great because yeah. it gives you, a, um, it, it just enables you to um, to give back a little bit yeah. and um, and listen to other people's work and yeah. and learn off them because yeah. there's some talented kids out no, there. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and it's just great. So I, I'm just the, the industry's changed. It's not possible to go in and just be. Um, a record producer stroke no. engineer from no. day one They're, the jobs aren't there but there's plenty of work in other areas well I think as well and, and just you know probably to, it's a nice tie up um, that the, the word you just used there is a word that funnily enough I've used when I've spoken to a few people who are musicians stroke um, influencers which is a term you know I'm, I'm not overly keen on but it's a term that's out there 
and that is that when you speak to a lot of people, they have a, they do have a definite idea about what they want to do. Yeah. They don't want to be in a management-based structure. Yeah. They don't want to be, you know, find themselves being influenced. Um, but what they do really value is mentoring. Yeah, they they do. They don't want if they can avoid mistakes, they'd like to avoid yeah. mistakes. And and whilst. We, we know that's not a bad thing because you learn from everything you do but at the end of the day you know uh, I've, I've been in and around the industry for 25 years and I've chatted with people who are in that situation yeah. and been able to help them with often very practical things yeah. uh, and I think so I think you know where you found yourself now is probably a model for where you know where that role takes yeah. you because actually record producer stroke mentor they might, they might ultimately end up being a term for that yeah. but that seems like a natural kind of evolution of where, of well, like, of where yeah. we are I don't, want my, I don't want the skills that I've picked up over 30 years to be lost no. I, don't, I learned off some brilliant people <laughs> yeah. when I got back into after my couple of years break I started engineering for producers again yeah because that's what I, I hadn't got enough of a track record yeah. at that point, and I I'm so pleased I did because yeah. I learned some incredible stuff. Yeah. And not everybody's going to work the way I do, but I don't work the way my mentors worked. Yes. But what I've done is I've I've embraced every part of technology and and, and process and made it my own. Yeah. And I think it's just just making sure that stuff doesn't get forgotten about yeah. because just because the latest and greatest allows you to do this doesn't mean you should use no, it no. I hate it I had a band last year and I'm not going to name them but they came in and the singer was literally you'll be able to fix my tuning won't you and I'm like <laughs> I no I'm not going to fix your tuning you're going to give me the time I know you can do it I've seen you do it live I've heard yeah. you in rehearsal you're not going in with that attitude Yeah. stop it right yeah. now because yeah. it's just it's rubbish people are relying on something that they don't need to rely on yeah oh I totally agree it's totally hideous agree. Yeah. and um, so I don't want that to get lost I'm not an old fuddy duddy I just no. I really care about no. music and the stuff that we listen to the, the reason that Animals is my favourite Pink Floyd album is because you can hear the tension you can yeah. hear what they mean yeah. the, the music suits the lyrics and yeah. Gilmore's a little bit out of his comfort zone yeah um, and it's a Roger album, definitely, although Gilmore would always say, oh, no, I very much had a lot to do with it. <laughs> and fair enough, but the, the point is, you can hear that band in the studio playing. Yes. That's yeah. not a Pink Floyd production album no, at all. No, no. And, and it's real, so... Yeah. Well, I think it's a lovely place to leave it. Plus, we're, we're struggling to compete with the I noise know. level as it gets louder and louder. Well, at least in the they're show. blues licks. Nan uh, the other week was just shredding. Yeah, yeah. Well, yeah. No, I, I, take, I take that. Actually, there's, there's been less shredding than I thought there'd be, which is, which is, you know, which is for people like us of a certain age, yeah, it's oh, quite nice. Yeah. But Mike, thanks for your time. Pleasure. It's been thanks great for asking me. to talk to you. Um, and hopefully, we'll get a chance to catch up again soon because I'm sure there's going to be plenty of stuff we can talk about in the future. Thanks, Brilliant. Mike. Thanks a lot. Welcome back. So um, the wonderful um, and actually inspirational uh, Mike Exeter. Um, what a fantastic interview. Didn't necessarily go um, the way I kind of expected it to go, but I thought it was a, I thought it was a, a, a beautifully human and genuine, um, you know, recording. Yeah, I, I uh, think Mike is a uh, he's a lovely chap, but uh, he's also um, incredibly open. Yeah. Uh, incredibly supportive uh, you know he's he's quite uh, you know he, he doesn't mind talking about mental health and he does a no. lot uh, in the industry now for mental health and I just think it's really important and it's probably even more important given that we're all currently locked in our houses as well yeah yeah it, yeah uh, I mean this this reminds you of um, you know that the period we're going through now reminds you about how easy it is I mean I mean that's been one of the coronavirus kind of positives to a certain extent is that there is more talk about about mental health which is you know which is a um which is can't be a bad thing um so uh, but no mike incredibly open about his particular um you know his particular experiences and 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 just just you know and and, and i know this is overused but i mean just a, a really really nice guy and, a, and an absolute pleasure to be able to do that to do that interview um so where do we go from here? What what we've we've still got a few more interviews in the bag. Yeah, what do we do next? 
I think we'll probably do Rabia and Rob Chapman as uh, one interview because they took they do a gang to bang of, of sorts. <laughs> I wouldn't have quite <laughs> put it like that, um, but they do blend into each other in the fact that Rob then appears in Rabia's chat after Rob's chat. Yeah. So yeah. Um, we'll put that out as because um, it, it's kind of interesting the rise of the uh, the YouTuber. Um, yes. So you've gone through, you know, Phil X uh, and Mike, who've gone through the traditional route. Yeah. Um, but this is a very new world now, and yeah. uh, they've got a very interesting take on it. Yeah. Yeah. Well, we'll we'll get we'll certainly that that that'll be the next episode. We'll 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 put that together. Which, um, yeah, as you said, it's it's it is a different world. It's a uh, you know, Mike very very traditional route and talks talks with very specific time. Uh, and then, and then Rob, which is which is literally uh, as as much of a one eighty as it's possible to to do, really. So, uh, so we'll we'll definitely get onto that. Um, as always, please get in touch. Um, best route is Facebook, Jace. The um, <coughs> the Guitar Show UK. The Guitar Show UK. Same um, on Instagram and Twitter. So any of those any of those profiles. Um, I never actually asked this. Is Twitter open for? Are you open for direct messages on Twitter? I am. Right, fine. I so I haven't got anything else to do at the moment, so uh, <laughs> far no, away. <laughs> no, I'm, I meant, is it switched on? You don't have to yes, be following. Yes, it's it's on. switched on, yeah. But yeah. Uh, I wasn't suggesting just bombard you to fill your time. Uh, but actually, not a bad idea. Bombard Jace, just fill his time. Um, uh, so, yeah, get in touch and, and let us know um, what you think of the podcast. Uh, if you get a chance to rate us, please rate us, because it really helps other people find the podcast uh, absolutely will help us in terms of ratings as well um so or in terms of positioning so the the, the more ratings the higher up we feature in the list so of course um there's uh, you know it's not we're not asking you out of uh, sort of um generally out of the goodness of our heart we'd like to see that that uh, that, that pushes up the the, the ratings and, and the ranks if possible and the other thing that we're we're just in the process of launching uh, now is that we're going to give you the opportunity to support the show. So um, we're just finalising a, uh, a Patreon uh, page to um, to allow you to support the show. If you'd care to help us support the show, this is a uh, this is something that both of us do um, as kind of a, 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 a bit of a labour of love, but there are costs involved and what have you. So if you want to support the show, that would be absolutely great. And we are going to be putting out... Bits of extra content for for those people that that choose to support, and when we get back to normal, probably bits of merch as well. We've we've got a bit of a, a Patreon only merch idea brewing, haven't we? We have, we have, but uh, we'll uh, we'll say more so, about that when we're uh, back more, to normal. Yes, when we're, but in in the in the short term, we'll try and bring you some extra content on on Patreon. Also, um, and and finally, with feedback. Anybody you'd like us to talk to, if that's possible. UK-based, obviously, far easier. But if you want to speak to somebody from Orange, or you want to speak to somebody from um, Fender, or you want to speak to somebody from, you know, whoever, just just uh, just let us know, and we'll see if we can make that 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 possible. Um, I've about run out of things to say for for episode three. Uh, yeah, Dave. me too. Me too. Um, so we'll Let's we'll call that a run. Yeah, a huge thanks to uh, to Mike Exeter, and join us next time for for Robin Revere. All right. Cheers. Bye-bye. Thanks for listening to 9 to 42, the podcast from the team at the Guitar Show UK. If you've enjoyed the show, then please remember to hit the subscribe button and share with other like-minded souls. For more information about 9 to 42, please follow us on Facebook, Twitter, or Instagram at the Guitar Show UK. This has been an A Short Stories production. 